and thanks for listening. This is BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the newsroom at Business in Vancouver. I'm Kirk LaPointe, Editor-in-Chief. Uh, we're scheduled to, at very long last, enter the era of ride-hailing, also called ride-sharing, uh, later this year when the provincial government outlines the Made in BC model and the Passenger Transportation Board starts processing applications from entrance into the business. We are the largest jurisdiction, as we all know, without these services anywhere in North America, and there have been several reasons why. One expected entrant into the mix this fall will be Lyft, which has been operating elsewhere now for nearly seven years. It's recently become a publicly traded company. The managing director of Canada at Lyft is Aaron Zivkin. He's here to participate in an on-stage discussion that we're holding, and uh, I'm also moderating, and he joins me now on the podcast. Thanks a lot for coming. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. And in a more existential way, are you guys sure you're coming? Well, we're, we're hopeful. We're hopeful. Yeah? It, we, we, like, is that a scale of one to five, four hopeful? Or is it uh, one to five, three hopeful? It, we, you know, tell, tell me what, what you, what's your feeling on this? Well, we, we've been working for several years now at all levels of government to try and bring true ride sharing to BC residents. And uh, true ride sharing for us is being able to deliver on what people love about Lyft both in uh, Toronto, Ottawa, and down in the U.S., which is making sure that people have affordable and reliable transportation options. Listen, I, um, I could identify probably 10, 12, 15 uh, things that I think are happening a little differently here than almost anywhere else, but I, I want to concentrate maybe on four of them, and, and you can walk me through them all. Um, the first is the fare regime. You know, uh, ride-sharing, ride-hailing elsewhere, of course, is is at a very different level at times than the conventional taxi industry. What do you think is going to happen here? It's it's tough to speculate what's going to happen here, but you know, really, what this is all about again is is dependability. And I think you know, all you need to to do is uh, you know have an event planned with your friends or family here in Vancouver and take a look at the weather forecast. And my guess is at around fifty or sixty percent probability, you're probably thinking whether or not you're actually going to go out uh, because of that dependability, right? Are you going to be able to get home? And so things play a lot of things play a role in that one is obviously yeah so you're less you're less focused on the fares and more on the dependability issue that that's right yeah making sure that people have uh have a safe and reliable ride home yeah okay so the second issue that i can identify is the supply of vehicles and again uh i've been out at the airport i've waited uh many many minutes uh for the arrival of taxis and i think it's a constant concern of those that come here say on cruise liners uh uh, those that uh, perhaps are um, are at events on a Thursday, Friday, or Saturday night, and the taxis are downtown. It's because there is a, a finite supply uh, at any given point, uh, the way that it's regulated, but not so elsewhere. What, what do you are What are you hoping for here? Well, I think again, when you go back to this definition of what true ride sharing is, it's really about having supply at the right time and at the right places. And, and you know, right now, and unfortunately, we're we're, we're talking um, uh, with the Ministry of Transportation around this notion of a, a class four licensing system, which really is a big blocker to having this this ability to have true ride sharing. And it's just an onerous process that really brings no no other advantages. Yeah, I, I want to talk about the licensing here in a sec, but the the province is suggesting that there will be a particular cap on the number of vehicles that can be out there at any given point in ride sharing and yet where I've been uh, when I've been traveling and I've used the services uh, 
what I find is that the driver is often, you know, he's dropped his kid off for soccer for three hours and has two hours to spare to to basically do this. If if you're setting up a cap, isn't that going to basically make it difficult for people to have that kind of a uh, a side hustle or, or participate in that kind of gig economy? Ab- absolutely. I think you're spot on there. 75% of our drivers, 75% of them are driving less than 10 hours a week. And it's mm-hmm. really this idea around flexibility that gives you that opportunity to have that elastic supply base. And so, you know, think about going down to a Vancouver Canucks game, right? And what that looks like on Pat Quinn Way after a game. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it's, it's just a, a disaster. But you can't regulate that kind of, how do I put it, it's almost uh, spontaneous uh, participation in the driver force. But you, you don't need to because, yeah. the, you know, they're, they're making the supplemental income. Yeah. Uh, and so, again, most of the hours that they're driving are actually between the hours of 8 p.m. and 4 a.m. Mm. Uh, we see that in a lot of our markets, right? Mm. It's, these, it's these hours where people are going out to restaurants and, you know, maybe having a couple of drinks. And the driver has uh, a day job. That, and, that, and and that, this is a way to make. Some that's right. And there's cash. some wonderful stories that you hear with our driver community, right? Whether it's people that are pursuing uh, their own startups and they're looking for supplemental income, mm-hmm. or single parents who need that flexibility yeah. when their kids are at paying, school, paying for school. Yeah, and so it, it's a it's a wonderful opportunity. You know, there there was we were really excited. There was a, a legislative committee that was assembled here in BC, and really that group went across party lines, mm-hmm. and they really engaged with various stakeholders, including industry um, uh, players like ourselves, as well as industry experts. And the recommendation that they put forward was for a Class Five license. And so we're really hopeful that the Ministry of Transportation adopts that. Well, I saw that recommendation, but. Uh, so far, uh, the minister has kind of pushed one, pushed back on this one. Um, and, and so let's explore that issue, the Class 4 versus the Class 5 license, the Class 4 being uh, more difficult to get, some resourcing that you have to put next to it, certainly some time allocation. Um, and and it, what, what I've heard you say uh, is that there's more of a need for something like a Class 4.5 license, something in between the two. What's the zone that you're looking for there? Well, I, I think the, you know, just to zoom out a little bit, the question is, what are you trying to achieve? Um, and just to be clear, the class four versus class five, just, you know, so your your listeners understand is really the difference between a commercial license and a, a general license right now. In the vast majority of jurisdictions, if not all in Canada, they're either with class five or moving toward a class five, again, really enables people that flexibility. Um, when you actually look back, the ICBC just a, a, a little while ago actually shared some data saying that there is no statistical significance as it relates to safety between a class four and a class five license. And so the only answer you can sort of come to the conclusion, you know, the only thing, conclusion you can come to is that they're pandering to the taxi industry. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know how much you want to get into that, but but let's, let's try to deal with that quite a bit because I've certainly... Uh, uh, since this for nearly a decade, which is that the taxi industry here is extremely ensconced. It has, uh, it certainly has political power, uh, at least it, it believes it does, and for that matter, politicians believe it do. It does. So um, how, how are you also in any dialogue with the taxi business to try to at least mitigate what will be obviously some concerns as, as 
ride-sharing arrives. What are you doing in this one? So our, our mission at Lyft is to improve people's lives with the world's best transportation. And so that's everybody. That's all BC residents. And so it's not just about the taxi industry. It's about great organizations like TransLink. Mm. TransLink CEO Kevin Desmond, who's, who's been an advocate for, for ride-sharing and integration there, real progressive leader, real progressive organization. And so there are a number of different ways that we can advance transportation and mobility for BC residents. And when, you know, moving away from policy for a second, the thing that I'm most excited about bringing ride-sharing to BC is about what, a, what life becomes like for BC residents. You start to think about the idea of really exploring your city and having that spontaneity, not being worried about whether or not you can make it home or not, is, is one. In one of our jurisdictions down in the U.S., we've actually seen DUI arrests be reduced by 65%. Yep. Yep. That's a lot of lives yep. being saved, and that's, and that's real. And then you start to think about, you know, how do we make this more of an environmental conversation as well? Putting more people in shared rides, really increasing occupancy in rides, figuring out that first mile, last mile um, uh, partnership with things with, with organizations like TransLink, um, putting more people in electric vehicles, mm-hmm. which is also a really exciting topic right now. And then, of course, the you know the introduction of the multimodal approach, which is also introducing bikes and electric scooters to the mix. And so you really start to see how the city you know, will evolve when ride sharing does enter. I mean, I I can get what that potential landscape looks like, but it strikes me that you're you're still like in the baby step area era here with British Columbia. Uh, I mean, can you really have that kind of a appreciable dialogue with institutions when it's not even evident to me so far that, that you're going to get some some kind of regime that would make it even, from an economic sense, palatable to participate? I mean, listen, we've been having this conversation for years, and we will continue to have these conversations, uh, you know, moving forward at all levels of government and with various institutions. Again, our goal is to make sure that life becomes better for BC residents, and we'll continue to, you know, to fight that fight until we're here. Um, a fourth area that has also, I think, been one of those um, big customer-focused uh, complaints uh, around the conventional business is that of jurisdictions. The idea that you know that a taxi company from one jurisdiction can't easily pick up somebody in another one, or sometimes can't bring them to, to another place. You get all these people, you know, worried that somehow they're not going to actually get home. And in some cases, they do drive home, and sometimes they drive home impaired because they they can't get a taxi back there. Once again, um, the message that I'm getting from the provincial government seems to be that um, they are going to deal with some of these jurisdictional issues. What what do you want them to do in this case? Well, you know, again, going back to really improving people's lives, we see about 80% of our drop-offs end up being in some of these underserved areas, uh, underserved by transportation. And a lot of the time it's connected to socioeconomic status. And so we really want to provide transportation equity, making sure that all people can access transportation. And so you start to think about programs around people getting to healthcare appointments or the elderly being able to be mobile and, and, and get around. All of those things are great additions to ride train that we're looking forward to bring in those outer jurisdictions as well. Yeah. When um, when it was announced that we were doing our event uh, together and I was moderating, uh, I, I will say the sky is somewhat emptied uh, from your skeptics. And your skeptics, uh, particularly in the United States, uh, I was surprised at how many tweets began to come in. Um, where people were saying, hey, listen, um, you have to talk about safety, you have to talk about passenger safety. 
And I, and I would imagine that this is going to be an ongoing issue for, uh, for you as a new entrant in all of this, because it is even for those that are in the conventional business. But what do you want to talk about with, um, with passenger safety and driver safety, obviously, in all of this, to, to reassure the public that they're not getting uh, a new service that doesn't have the same compass as a lot of the traditional ones. Yeah, so let, let me start. Let me be very clear that safety has been our number one priority uh, historically and will continue to be the number one priority for Lyft moving forward. And that process really starts with the background check process of our drivers. So we do a criminal background check annually. We do a driver record check annually as well to make sure that we've got great drivers on the platform. But then you start to get into some of the nuance between existing transportation industries and what the ride-sharing industry and the technology that we bring to the table actually brings. So things like understanding, being able to share your ride, right? If you're riding home uh, in a lift, you can actually share your ride and people can follow you where you're going, whether that's with friends or family, you can Mm -hmm. send that. Number two, we've got photos of the individual that's picking you up and the license plate as well. So you know that you're getting into the right car. We've also got this great piece of technology called the Lyft Amp, which you may have seen in some other cities. Mm. Um, unfortunately, not here yet, but hopefully soon, where we will actually map, we'll actually match the color of the amp in the front, which is a light, a beacon, in the front of the dashboard to the app. So you actually know that you're getting into You're getting a real you're, driver. You're getting, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then you start getting into the fact that there is, there's no cash transaction. You've got an electric receipt as mm-hmm. well. Uh, and so you actually know these humans that are coming and picking you up in the car that you're getting into. So these are just some of the areas, obviously, that we've got. And so a lot of those advancements, you do not see in the taxi industry today. So these are above and beyond. Yeah. It, in as much as uh, as the uh, the ride-sharing piece of it is an interesting one where you're, you, know, you have two or three passengers sometimes getting in, in the vehicle, or, and uh, is there anything that can be done in order to make sure that in a certain way that that the destinations uh, don't get somehow disclosed easily with one another? Or is that just something that we, frankly, we just have to get past? Uh, they're, they're not disclosed with each other. They're, it's actually between the, the passenger and the driver. So that's, that, that's an easy one. Um, but again, more than anything, when you start to talk about shared rides, I mean, this is really what the what the what Lyft was born out of, right? Was reducing con- congestion, and all you need to do is, you know, on your next commute down to work, is look at the car beside you, and chances are, actually, three to four cars are going to be having a single occupant. Oh yeah, um, no, no. I, as somebody with an electric vehicle that's permitted to be in the HOV lane, uh, I now get a very good understanding of how few cars actually have more than one passenger in them at any given point, right? Um, Let's talk about congestion, though, because, again, some of the criticism that has been there, warranted or not, has been, look, suddenly we're just going to be cluttered. We're going to have, you know, the downtown's just going to be sprayed with all of these ride-sharing vehicles from the various services that they're in. What's been the experience so far in terms of what has happened in other cities? Well, this is an area that we really want to be tackling and and facing head-on. There's a lot of things that contribute to congestion, right? And, you know, just, just to name a few, obviously... Rapid urbanization, a lot more people uh, living in cities, uh, population growth. Uh, but then you look at other industries that have been around for a while now, like e-commerce, right? You've got a lot of commercial vehicles now that are now servicing um, these other retailers. And so there's a lot of contributing factors that, that play into congestion. But the number one reason, and again, we just talked about it, are, are people, single-occupant cars, right? People that are driving um, by themselves. And so you start to think about cars that are only used 5% of the time. So 95% of the time, they're sitting there dormant. In Vancouver alone, you have 400 parking lots that are sitting there to service those. 
imagine if we could reduce car ownership and turn those parking lots into parks you know, for, for BC residents. I mean, that, that's a real opportunity and that's starting to happen. And so our whole thing is about really increasing occupancy, actually coming up with programs and partnerships like with TransLink, for example, in a first mile, last mile um, program, where people will now start to say, hey, you know what? I actually don't even need to own a car at all, right? I can actually believe in this system, again, that is dependable and affordable uh, and makes a lot of sense. Yeah. How far away are we, do you think, from um, you know, the, the real implementation of things like autonomous vehicles? Are we, are we still a decade or so away, do you think? That's a really tough one to speculate on. It's an area we're obviously heavily investing yeah, in now. Yeah. Um, we're seeing some experiments uh, today. I think uh, the, the number is we've done something over 30,000 uh, rides, obviously with a safety driver in place in, in Vegas with, with various partners. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is an area that we'll, we will continue to invest in. Yeah. Um, last area, and, and I think this, this is probably the, the critical Vancouver question, which is there's so many younger people who are working in our community who are just struggling. They find it that our salaries are not strong enough and our costs of living are are far too high. Um, Ride-sharing is is identified in a lot of cases as a a suburban solution and also an inner-city solution in all of this. What, what What do you hope for in the way of a participation in the economy? What do you, what do you think ultimately ride-sharing brings in the way of some kind of transformation around standards of living here? So I think there's a few different uh, different areas that I'd focus on. One is, you know, the, the first one that you alluded to, a, an economic lifeline for a lot of people. The opportunity to earn incremental income um, on their own time is a really, really powerful tool. Um, we have now over 2 million drivers on the platform have delivered over a billion rides. And so that's a pretty powerful a pretty powerful tool. But then you start to think about some of the you know, industries that are also going to benefit from this, the restaurant industries and tourism, people that are coming to visit the city and having a great experience. Um, we did an assessment. We think that the economic opportunity here is about $35 million of incremental spend mm-hmm. just in Vancouver alone. So there, mm-hmm. that, that's a real opportunity. But again, more than anything is really about the, the, the quality of life improvements, right? Where people really feel compelled and comfortable uh, going out and, and visiting friends and family uh, and really spending more time with each other that that's the, that's the thing that we're most excited about bringing to BC residents um, and you're hopeful you're actually going to bring it and I'd ask I guess the critical question which is can something stop you from coming do you think is, is are there factors still in the mix that we don't quite yet have certainty about that you think are still weighing on a company like Lyft and determining whether it it really ought to come in here, we we really want to make sure that the you know all of the reasons why people love this business and this, the level of service that we provide um, is being able to be delivered here. Lyft has always. Um, distinguished itself from the competition by its values, what it does, the way that it partners with cities and it makes life better for individuals. And so when you've got things like pricing and pickup times that are, are competitive, the thing that really emerges as our differentiator are those values. And so as long as we can deliver on those, on that brand promise, um, we'll continue to fight and make sure that we're uh, we're delivering that service to BC yeah. residents. I mean, not that I'm a Coca-Cola fan, but I mean... I, I know that I'm going to get the same Coca-Cola wherever I go, anywhere across North America. Are you prepared to have like a Lyft light or a Lyft, you know, a, a different version of Lyft 
in, in one particular market. We, we are really hopeful that uh, common sense will prevail here and <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll have yeah, the right okay, framework right. to operate. All right. All right. Aaron, good talking to you. Thanks so much for your time today. Yeah, thanks for having us. Aaron Zifkin is the Managing Director here in Canada for Lyft. I'm Kirk LaPointe, Editor-in-Chief of Business in Vancouver. Thanks a lot for listening to BIB Today. We'll see you next time.